which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and which has appeared to us. We proclaim to you that we have seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us and that your fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our complete. This is the message we have heard. From him we declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is light, we have fellowship with him, one with another, and with blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. The righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for our sins, but also for all the sins of the whole world. Thanks for that, Jeff. Uh, it's nice to have a shorter reading, isn't it? <laughs> We've had some long ones lately from judges. It's nice to have something that's a bit briefer uh, and yet very dense. There's lots in here. We're going to be unpacking these verses this morning. So keep your Bibles open. Uh, if you got the email this week, you will have also gotten sermon notes or a note sheet. Feel free to use that to follow along. And if you've got kids, there's some questions on there for them to listen out for. Uh, so kids, make a note of that. Um, pest your mum and dad if they haven't gotten one for you already and you can follow along with those questions before we open these verses up any further i'm going to pray and ask for god's help that we will read and understand these verses well so let's pray father we thank you uh, for your word it is such a good gift that we could learn of you from it that you would reveal yourself and what it means to live for you and what it is you've done for us in Jesus. Father, we thank you for these words that speak to us of life and light and hope and forgiveness. Father, they're such important things and we pray that even though we might be a little familiar with those words and those concepts, that you would help us to really understand them this morning. Father, may your spirit lead us through your word. May he open it in front of us uh, may he speak your words to our hearts, that we would be shaped and transformed by them and assured of the life that we have in Jesus through them. We pray these things in his name. Amen. 
Now, it's been a long time since any of us have flown. It probably will be a long time uh, till any of us fly again. But something I've noticed about all of us is that we each have these habits when it comes to flying on a plane. Uh, and one of my habits up until about a year ago was I would always print out the flight info, the booking confirmation that you get, and carry that up to the desk when I'm checking in. Um, I don't know why, it's kind of dumb, but, but I always felt like I needed to be able to bring some physical proof that yes, I had booked onto that flight, yes, I had paid, and I was there. Because, I mean, if I didn't have it, who knows what could happen? You know, you could walk up to the desk uh, and announce that you're on that flight only to hear, um, your name's not here. The, the computer doesn't know your name. You know, what a, what a nightmare that would be. <laughs> How awful to turn up for your flight, to turn up ready for your holiday, only to miss out, to not have your name recognized. And so print it out, that's, that's what I always did. But sometimes I think we can have the similar fear about God. Maybe in a low time, maybe when we feel like we're struggling, maybe even actually when things are going well. That thought can pop into our mind and it can kind of stick there. That, that fear that when that day comes that we'll stand before him, we might hear those terrible words. He might look at us and say, I never knew you. Your name's not here. How terrifying is that? I mean, it makes your heart stop, doesn't it? Now, John is writing to a church that had that same fear for a bit of a different reason. Uh, see, recently, a whole group of people in this church had started teaching things about Jesus that were strange and, and different to what the church had originally heard from John. These people were eloquent, they were confident, uh, and after a time, they had split themselves apart from the church and now, now were separate from them. But their voice was still heard. And they were saying to the church, saying to the people that John's writing to, we're the ones who really know God. We're the ones who are really his. You guys, you've actually got it wrong. You're, you're close, but wrong. You've missed out. You don't really know him. You can imagine how confusing that was for the church and how scary that thought is. Maybe we are wrong. And so John writes to them. He writes in part to correct some of the wrong things that are being said, but more importantly to reassure the church, to, to speak to them again of the confidence that they can have, that this is who God is, that this is what knowing him looks like, and this is how you can not only have it, but be confident that you do have it. He does it for their benefit, but he does it for ours as well. And that's why we're reading this this morning. Now, before we go any further, I've got a question for you, uh, for all of you. You might like to think about and write down an answer, perhaps. The question is this. Why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Why did he come to earth? It's not a trick question. <laughs> uh, have a think about it. Maybe write down an answer or, or, or jot down an answer in your mind. Uh, and we're, we're going to unpack that in just a moment. Now think about it, what, what would you write to a church that is worried like this church is? What, what would you write to a church that's insecure, that's doubting? Well, you want to give them confidence, don't you? You want to re-establish them 
And that's what John does as he opens up this letter. He reminds them of his own concrete experience. Look again at verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Uh, it's a little confusingly worded. Um, what John is doing is reminding them of the gospel that he wrote and the opening to that gospel, which uh, Jeff unpacked last week. But what John's saying here is, here's the facts. Remember, I, John, saw these things. I looked at them. I even touched them. It says we were there. What I'm saying is real. Everything that we, we saw and we heard, everything concerning the word of life, the eternal life that is Jesus, we're telling you it all. We're not making it up. We're speaking our experience of Jesus to you. At why? why? Why is that important that he talks about Jesus? Why is Jesus important to this church? Well, it's there for us in verse 3. Look at verse 3. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Why does John proclaim? Well, he, he proclaims what he's seen and heard so that this church can join him in his knowledge, can have fellowship with him. Why is that important? Because as John says, he has fellowship with God and with his son, Jesus Christ, because of what he's seen and because of what he's heard and because of what he knows. So the reason he wants these church to join him is because he's with God. He talks to them about Jesus so that this church can join him in his fellowship with God. That's the key. That's the bottom line here. That's the core of this message that John heard and proclaims. Jesus came for us to have fellowship with God. Jesus came for us to have fellowship with God. That's a bit of an odd word, the word fellowship. It's not something we use very often, uh, outside of the church, that is. Maybe you might know um, it's the Greek word koinonia. If you don't, don't worry about it. It's not super important. But what that word means is um, more than just knowing someone. It's, it's deeper and richer than that. It means participating in one another. Um, it means more than just having a head knowledge with someone or even just a, a basic friendship. It, it talks about sharing with one another, a real and a deep relationship. Uh, we might use the word, you know, friendship, but, but even beyond that, a deeper friendship. And that's what Jesus came to earth for, for a real and deep relationship between God and me between God and you. Not just to save, although that's obviously part of it. He came for the purpose of relationship because God wants a relationship with you. Because God wants a relationship with you. I mean, it's, that's an amazing thing, isn't it? When you stop to think about it. Uh, I think what it does at the very least is 
it corrects the way we often view God. Because sometimes I think we fall into a trap of thinking of God as kind of, kind of a reluctant saviour. You know, that saving is kind of what he does, but he does it kind of more out of pity because he feels he, he needs to. Um, for example, last, last week uh, we were driving on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere in northeast Tasmania, uh, Poimina of all places. And on this dirt road in this really remote area, we came across a car parked off to the side of the road, uh, bonnet up and its hazards on, and a woman standing in front of it waiting. Well, what do you do? I mean, I don't know much about cars. I certainly can't fix one with my meager toolkit. But you stop, don't you? Because that's the right thing to do. We didn't stop because we thought, you know, that woman looks really nice. <laughs> Maybe we could be friends with her. Uh, we didn't stop because we think, yeah, we'd like to get to know her a bit better and maybe have her over for dinner sometime. <laughs> that, that would be weird, wouldn't it? But we stop. We stop not because we really care for her in more than, you know, a passing or impersonal way. We stop because it's the done thing, because it's the right thing to do. Maybe we think God's a bit like that. He sees us pulled up on the side of the road, obviously in trouble, and he thinks... I can't really just drive by, can I? I guess I'll stop. I guess I'll help them out. But see, what John is saying is that's not it at all. That's a really cold and impersonal God. But John's saying God is not like that. God really cares. He came to save, not, not just because it's the right thing, but because he wants fellowship with you. He wants a real living relationship with you. I mean, what a radical thought. God is not saving and, you know, then standoffish. He's, he's saving and then he's involved. He doubles down. He wants you. I mean, doesn't that change the way that we look at living as a Christian? You know, when we think of God as if he was saving us out of duty, we would tend to look at living for him as being a kind of duty as well. You know, less a relationship and more a, a ticking of boxes. But see, the fact is, if you treat any relationship, especially a relationship with God, as if it was just duty, then you don't love it. In fact, you end up resenting it, don't you? You won't enjoy it. Other parts of life will be joy, but that relationship won't be. Because it's the right thing. <laughs> That's a terrible motivation. Because God loves me and I love him. That's a powerful motivation, isn't it? See, the latter is joy, it's, it's confidence, it's delight. The, the former duty, that destroys. The latter is personal and real. The former is impersonal and cold. So correct your mind, challenge your thinking on this. God wants to know you. He sent Jesus so that he could relate to you personally and closely. God wants to know you. It's, it's a joy, isn't it? And not just a joy for you, it's a joy to share. Look at how uh, John writes of it in verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. Uh, it's true, isn't it? There's, there's joy in sharing good news. We love it when we, something exciting happens to us and we get to tell other people. And this is the best news. Not just God wants to save you from your sin, but also God loves you and wants to know you. 
I mean, we enjoy fellowshipping around God, don't we? We're longing for the time when we can come back here and, and do that together and enjoy him together. So how wonderful is it to be able to invite others to join us in that? I mean, just, just think about it. How much would your joy increase if uh, in a couple of weeks' time when we're back together here, your neighbour is with you? Who you've been longing to tell about Jesus? Or your good friend who you just want to share that good news with? Or your family member who's wandered? How much will that increase your joy? So here's the key. You want real joy? Then tell someone about Jesus. In order that your joy would be complete. Okay, so fellowship. So relationship with God is joy. It's what Jesus came to bring. But who is this God? Who is this God who wants a relationship with him? Who did Jesus actually bring? What's he like? Well, John tells us. Look at verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. That makes you feel uh, a little bit uncomfortable. That's good. You've actually understood uh, what this verse is pointing at. What's God like? He's like light. There is no darkness in him. You've probably heard that before. You've probably read over it before. But if we read it too quickly, there's, there's a danger. We can miss something really important here. We, we can miss how uncomfortable this is. God is light. Great. Let's move on. But actually come back to that. Dwell on it for a moment. God is bright. God is pure. This picture of light, perfect light, it's, it's a picture of holiness, isn't it? Perfect holiness. Perfect righteousness. I mean, think about the brightest source of light that you know, that the, the sun that's so bright today. It's not exactly approachable, is it? How do you have a relationship with someone like that, with someone who is defined by being perfect light? The tricky thing is, it's desirable. Because what do we know of light? Well, we know that light leads to life. Light leads to life. Uh, remember what Genesis tells us right at the very start of the Bible? The very first thing created. And God said, let there be light. And from that creation of light came the rest of creation, including all life. Or we flip forward uh, a thousand pages or so to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 19. This is what we read, Isaiah 60, verse 19. The sun will no more be your light by day, nor will the brightness of the moon shine on you. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Uh, which, which, as you read on, means life forever. Or you read what John said of Jesus in his gospel, in his story of Jesus' life, right in John chapter 1, verse 4. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. See, that's the consistent picture, isn't it? Life, uh, sorry, light means life. Light means life. Okay, picture for me. 
uh, picture the very bottom of the ocean, not you know near the coast, but right out in the middle of the ocean, thousands of meters down, uh, the abyssal plain it's called. There you go, your fact for the day, the abyssal plain. There is no sunlight there whatsoever. It's thousands of meters down, no light makes it that far. It is pitch black. And the bottom of the sea is utterly barren. There is nothing alive there whatsoever. Until you get to these huge undersea hot water vents, these chimneys, that's literally what they look like, spewing out hot water into the ocean. And around them, what you find is these enormous ecosystems of millions of living creatures, you know, surrounded by this barren wasteland. Here is, you know, millions upon millions of things living together in this community. And incredibly, scientists have found, even in this pitch black place, photosynthesizing, that is, using sunlight or using light for food. How's that possible? Well, they're using infrared light. Uh, emitted from the heat of those hot water vents. Invisible to us, but usable as light to live by for these incredible creatures. See, even there in the most barren, lifeless place, light means life. And that's why we want to be near God. Because even unapproachable as he seems to be, he is life. Take him away and there's only death. I mean, try it this week. Take a, take a plant in your house, one that you don't like, uh, put it in total darkness for a week. Put it in a cupboard, put it up in your roof or under your house. It'll live for a while. It'll live for a few days, maybe. But it will certainly die. And so too with people. Without God, we live for a while and then die. But with God, with the light that he is, is life. John is saying we need God. We depend on God because he is light. He is the light that brings life. We utterly depend on him. At the very least, that's got to determine how uh, we operate around him, doesn't it? It's got to determine the place that we, he has in our lives. But does it? Do our lives testify that we depend on him for everything? Uh, I saw a quote this week from Corrie Ten Boom. Uh, it was a quote about prayer. She, she simply asks this. She asks, is prayer your steering wheel or your spare tire? <laughs> is prayer your steering wheel? or your spare tire. I, mean, I know she's talking about prayer, but it cuts to how we view God, doesn't it? Is God something we, we take out in emergencies when we've got nothing left to turn to? Or does God drive our life? Because if John is right, if God is light, if God is life, if we truly need God simply to live, then we need him always, don't we? Not just when it suits us, not just when we like it, but every moment of every day, driving every part of our life, running our decisions by him, letting his words shape our, our lives, our thoughts, our attitudes, our dreams, every corner of us. That's what it means to you that God is light. But how do we approach a God of light? 
If he's pure, if he's perfect, how can he tolerate us? How do we do that? Well, there's two possible paths. The first is, we could just simply deny that there's any issue. I mean, fine, we can approach God, there's no issue, we're all good. Uh, that's what the false teachers were saying. The false teachers in that John's uh, that have split from the church that John's writing to. Um, you see it echoed in, in what he writes. Look at verse 6, 8, and 10 with me. Uh, verse 6 If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. Verse 8 If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 10 If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Uh, those if we claims seem to be the claims that the false teachers were making, and, and John addresses each one of them. And essentially what they're saying is, we're all good. We're walking with God. We don't have any sin in us. We, we've never sinned, in fact, so there's no issue. We can, we can just do what we want and walk with him. But John cuts it to pieces. What's the result, he says? He says the result is not only do they lie, but they accuse God of being a liar. They don't know him at all. There's no closeness. There's no relationship there. There's just mutual lying. They're actually further apart. What John is saying is minimizing sin, pretending there is no sin, is no solution at all. That's option one. John gives us option two. And option two is own it. Look at verse seven and verse nine. Verse seven. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Verse nine. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. John's command, John's suggestion, walk in the light. Don't run from sin, but face it. Face the truth, face your need for help, turn to Jesus and what he's done. But here's the question, how could we ever claim to walk in the light? <laughs> that seems like a massive claim, doesn't it? I mean, if, if we're honest with ourselves, we never claim to walk in the light. We're not good enough for that. But maybe you can think of it like this. Uh, say you're, you're driving to Burnie. Um, you've got a lovely dual carriageway highway all the way. It's beautiful, wide open road, a nice, easy drive. But, you know, all your life, all your dry life, you've, you've driven to Burnie on the left-hand side of the road. It's boring. I mean, you've done it a, a thousand times. You know what the road's like. You want to change your scenery. So you say, I'm going to drive on the right-hand side today, just for something different. So you do. You, uh, you turn onto the right-hand side of the road and start making your way to Bernie, and you drive perfectly, better than you, you would if you were on your driving test. Uh, you use these things called indicators, which apparently most Tasmanians haven't yet discovered. Uh, you're very respectful of all the other drivers on the road, very pleasant, you know, waving and nodding at everyone. You drive the speed limit perfectly, uh, even in the roadworks areas. Your driving is flawless. But you're still wrong, aren't you? 
doesn't matter how well you drive, you're still wrong because you're heading the wrong way. It doesn't matter if you drive utterly perfectly. Everything you're doing is wrong. Whereas if you drove on the correct side of the road, the left side of the road, even if you didn't indicate, even if you're rude and tailgated everyone around you, even if you bent a few road rules, you're still in the right, aren't you? You're still heading in the right direction. And so it is with God. If you've trusted him, if you've put your trust in him and walked with him, then you are in the light. It doesn't mean that you're perfect, but it means that you're heading on the right side of the road. You're heading in the right direction. So how do we cross the road then? How do we get onto the correct path? How is our, our wrong both changed and dealt with? Well, John tells us in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Uh, that if there in verse 1 is, is better when, uh, when we sin, because we certainly will. When we sin, we have one for us. What did he do? Well, he, Jesus, was our atoning sacrifice. Or if you've got a different translation, he was our propitiation. Uh, both of those things, atoning sacrifice, propitiation, they're a jargon word. Um, but they're really important. Uh, propitiation means the turning aside of wrath. Uh, kids, you can quiz your parents on that later to make sure that they're paying attention. Ask them what propitiation means. Propitiation is the turning aside of wrath. The light, the purity, the terror and perfection and therefore fury of God against sin, John says, Jesus turned aside from us. He turned it aside from you and me by turning it on himself. And there's the key to this, this whole passage. Jesus is the gift of God given to appease the wrath of God in order to make relationship with God possible for you and me. Jesus is the gift of God, given to appease the wrath of God, to make relationship with God possible for you and me. He gladly and willingly deals with your wrong once and for all. He takes you from wrong to right, from darkness and to light. And even now where we're told he speaks in our defense, that is he advocates for us. And when you sin as you will, Jesus says, Jesus stands up, puts his hand up and says, I've paid for that. I, I've dealt with that. I've settled that for you. It means nothing now. And so your relationship with God is untouched. Your fellowship with him, the life you receive from him, it's unaffected by that. It's as true as ever. Unchanged and ongoing. There is your confidence. Jesus is the basis, he is the beginning, he is the being of your relationship with God. It's all in him. So you can be perfectly confident because his work is perfect. 
not your knowledge. It's not your doing. It's not your insight. It's not your experiences of God. It's not your sinlessness or lack thereof. It's all Jesus and only Jesus. In him, you can relate to God, the light, the source of life. You can have a true and personal relationship, fellowship with him. And therefore, life eternal through him. You are freed from fear for God. And therefore, you're freed also to deal with your faults, to deal with your sin well. I mean, it's very easy for us not to do that. <laughs> we live in a, a culture where our faults, where our, our wrongdoing is, is hidden. We, we cover it over. That's, that's the Australian way. We minimize it. We dodge it. We downplay it. Ah, oh, it's not so bad. Good is the one who gets away with it. That's, that's kind of the Australian motto, isn't it? But anyone who's ever cleaned their room by pushing it all under the bed knows, one day it comes back to bite you. It gets worse. But what Jesus has done means we as his people can do far better than that. Not, not pretending or claiming perfection. I mean, Christians shouldn't ever think that we're somehow better than the people around us or, or morally superior than anyone. We're sinners like everyone else. But instead, admitting, confessing, claiming the forgiveness that Jesus has given. I mean, after all, we know our sin was, is dealt with. It won't change our standing before God, and neither will it jeopardize our place amongst his people. See, of all people, Christians ought to be the best at owning their faults. I mean, we've got a great guide to point them out to us, the Bible. We should be excellent at owning because we've got a great hope that covers them all. So let's ask, are we? Are we good at owning our faults? Are you? Am I? When was the last time you genuinely confessed at Connect or Bible study or in your discipleship group? I mean, I, look, I, I know there's need. I know it from my own life. I know it from yours as well. I know that if we are really studying God's word and laying it on our lives truthfully, it's going to point out faults that need to be confessed. As people, as sinners still, we are going to sin and we are going to sin against each other even in the church. Therefore, we're going to need to confess well, not only to God, but to one another too. See, hidden, unconfessed sin is a terrible force in the church, amongst our, amongst our fellowship, because it's still powerful. It gives birth to, to fear and defensiveness. It destroys fellowship. It causes, creates conflict. But sin that's spoken of, sin that's brought out into the light, that's confessed and addressed, that sin is robbed of its power. Yes, it still stings, there's still hurt there, but it's toothless because it claims Jesus' forgiveness. Its power is broken. We want fellowship with God and we want the fellowship with one another that that brings. We, we, we want each other, don't we? We want true and deep relationships with each other. And the only way that can happen is if we honestly and openly address our sin together and with each other. 
So here's a challenge. Practice it. Take one or two steps this week to do it. Where when you're reading your Bible this week in your connect group or your discipleship group or wherever it is with someone else, don't just look for the things uh, that it, it, it points out that you could do. Look for the things that you shouldn't be doing, things that you haven't done, that you ought to have, and confess them. Not just confess in general, but confess your sin. There's no condemnation because Jesus has taken your sin. Your sin is just like my sin, dealt with in his death. And so the forgiveness that we each have received, we show. Because at the end of the day, we have fellowship with God. Jesus came to bring it. He made it possible. The God of light, of perfection and holiness and power and life, he wants you. He wants to know you. He wants to participate in your life as you participate in him and his life. So trust him. Live with him. Not, not fearing or denying your faults, but confessing them and trusting his perfect forgiveness. It's all yours. Grab hold of it and live it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you for the joy and assurance and confidence this passage gives to us. For you are the God who wants to know us. You are the God of light and of life eternal. You are the God who has made all this possible by sending Jesus to be the propitiation for our sin and the promise of forgiveness and life eternal. Father, we're so thankful for these truths. What a joy they are. Help us to be confident in them. Help us to be joyful in you. Help us to have great joy in sharing you and the good news of you with others around us. Help us to be a people who don't run from our sin, but confess it to you and to one another, knowing that you have paid for it in Jesus, that its power is broken. We praise you for him and pray these things in his name. Amen.